Each year, the Unitarian Universalist Association selects one book as a common read that all Unitarian Universalists are encouraged to read, to study, and to discern potentially acting in response to. Previous common reads have included the death of Jocelyn, immigration stories from the Mexico-Arizona border, Acts of Faith, the story of an American Muslim and the struggle for the soul of a generation, the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in an age of colorblindness, and behind the kitchen door, justice for restaurant workers, and reclaiming prophetic witness liberal religion in the public square. Here at UUCF, we have read, studied, and in various ways engaged in activism around the issues raised by these books. And if any of those titles pique your interest, I would recommend any or all of them to you. This year's UUA Common Read is titled Just Mercy, and it's by Brian Stevenson, an attorney, human rights activist, and founder of the Equal Rights Initiative, Equal Justice Initiative. He's one of the most acclaimed and respected lawyers in our nation, a recipient of the MacArthur MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and a tenured professor at New York University School of Law. If you're interested in hearing him speak in person, in a happy coincidence, he will be here in Frederick at the Weinberg on April 21st, and there's still tickets available for that um, Frederick Speaker Series. The epigraph at the beginning of his book, Just Mercy, how many of you have read it, either some or all of it? Okay, quite a few of you. Uh, The epigraph at the beginning quotes theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, love is the motive, but justice is the instrument. Love is the motive, but justice is the instrument. I understand that quote to mean that love is the necessary but insufficient ingredient to reach our goals because we must harness the power of love to sustain the work of justice. Or in the words of philosopher Cornel West, justice is what love looks like in public, just like tenderness is what love feels like in private. Justice is what love looks like in public. Stevenson is the founder and executive director, as I said, of the Equal Justice Initiative. So what then for Stevenson is the injustice that he in particular thinks we must harness the power of love and mercy toward transforming? Consider just a few statistics. We, the people of the United States, in the year 2016, have the highest rate of incarceration in the world. Our prison population has increased from around 300,000 people in the early 1970s to 2.3 million people today. That is an increase vastly incommensurate with the population increase in the time. 300,000 to 2.3 million. In the United States, the number of women sent to prison from 1980 to 2010 increased 646%. As a result of these trends, spending on prisons by uh, states and federal governments has risen from around $7 billion in 1980 to $80 billion today. $7 billion to $80 billion, creating profit motive to imprison and keep imprisoned increasing numbers of people. A racial disparity is also woven deeply into the prison industrial complex. People of color, especially African Americans, are arrested, convicted, and given the death penalty at far higher rates than white Americans. 
Among the many powerful stories that Stevenson tells in his book, Just Mercy, about reversing these trends, they're seeking to, one of the most moving is about Anthony Ray Hinton. In the year 2000, DNA evidence confirmed Hinton's innocence, but prosecutors refused to reconsider the case until forced to by the United States Supreme Court in 2015. So after serving almost 30 years on Alabama's death row, Mr. Hinton became the 152nd person in the United States of America exonerated and proven innocent after having been wrongly convicted and sentenced to death the 152nd American citizen on death row who was innocent the entire time they were in the criminal justice system. Looking back, my own awakening around the brokenness in our criminal justice system, in particular around the death penalty, uh, began with the 1995 film Dead Man Walking. Have any of you seen, seen that? Quite a few. I'd recommend that as well. At the center of the movie is the story of a Roman Catholic nun played by Susan Sarandon as a spiritual advisor to, uh, for a death row inmate played by Sean Penn. The portrayal strongly oscillates between uncovering the humanity of Penn's character, Matthew Ponsolet, so really getting at how this person, this death row inmate, is a human being with struggles and gifts and is a real person, while also continuing to oscillate to reminding us of the horrors of the crime that this human being committed. So each time your heart begins to break in compassion for the circumstances that led to this crime, you're reminded once again of the demand for justice on behalf of the victims that he killed. When I first saw the film, it was, and that is, it is based on true stories. Uh, two, two characters were built into a composite into this film. It's also a novel. It's by Sister Helen Prejean. Uh, when I first saw the film, it was part of an undergraduate class on, in religion and ethics, and reflecting on the film in that context and having come from a Christian background, it was particularly striking to me as I thought about modern death penalty in light of religious ethics to consider anew that Jesus had also been killed by the death penalty, and that the cross, like the contemporary electric chair that killed Matthew Ponsolet, is a symbol of state execution. Consider these parallels, and I, I very much do not mean these humorously. I really mean to point out the perversity and our, and our loss of perspective. That if Jesus had died during the French Revolution, would we see people wearing French-plated guillotines around their necks? If Jesus had died in the U.S. today, would we see you know, gold-plated hypodermic needles on the top of steeples? Uh, would we see you know, electric chairs used decoratively as jewelry or put up in sanctuaries? I mean, I think we've, we've very much lost the meaning of the cross in many circumstances as a symbol of Roman state execution and the parallels to our own society. As is depicted so powerfully in that film, Dead Man Walking, I want to keep the tension in front of us of, on one hand, our UU first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, in tension with the horrific acts that are committed by our fellow human beings that demand consequences. Regarding the first side of that tension, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, Brian Stevenson writes the following about the lessons that he's learned from decades of working directly with death row inmates. He writes, Proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths, including this vital lesson. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. 
He continues, my work with the poor and incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth. The opposite of poverty is justice. What he means by that is that typically only the wealthy get justice and typically the uh, poor always get injustice. He says, I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to the rule of law, to fairness, to equality, cannot be measured by how we treat the rich, the powerful, the privileged, and the respected among us. The true measure of our character is how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, the condemned. We all need mercy. We all need justice. And perhaps we all need some measure of unmerited grace. Stevenson's motive for founding his Equal Justice Initiative is that our criminal justice system does not treat all people the same. Rather, in the words of one of his mentors, the truth about capital punishment in our country is that them with the capital uh, don't, the, them without the capital get the punishment. Them without the capital get the punishment. So how might we better achieve what Stevenson calls a just mercy in a way that honors the call for both justice and mercy? How do we honor the inherent worth and dignity of every human being while also enforcing consequences for transgressions, both major and minor, against people and property? The most hopeful paradigm shift I have found is the move from our current system of punitive or retributive justice to a system called restorative justice. Along these lines, around the same time that I first saw the film Dead Man Walking, I learned about a group called Murder Victims Families for Reconciliation. It had been formed by, I mean, as the name says, by murder victims' families who had experienced the death penalty as a false hope. After years of wading through extensive appeals that focused much more on the perpetrator than the victims or them, the families, they found that the actual day of execution did not bring them the closure that the system had promised them. I'm not saying there, may, there are people who experience that as closure, but this, this group brings together the very many people who don't experience as, as closure. And once the murderer is executed, they discovered um, again and again as they began to share their stories that underneath their anger, continued to be an unresolved grief that had been delayed by this uh, death penalty process. What they really wanted could not be realized through more death because what they really wanted was the impossible, their loved one back in their arms. Some theologians call this dynamic the myth of redemptive violence, the idea that the best way to respond to violence is with more violence. But even the retributive justice of an eye for an eye or a life for a life, most often either intentionally or most often unintentionally, sows the seeds of future violence. In the words of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a sky already devoid of stars. Because darkness cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 
Within our current criminal justice system, a crime is typically framed in a way that what's really been done that's offensive is that the law has been broken and that the offended party is often most represented by the state, the state government or the federal government. In this retributive system, justice means determining the amount of punishment that the offender deserves. Often the victim and offenders are for the most part observers of the process that is administered by the court system that is navigated by professional attorneys. In a restorative justice system, the infraction is not breaking the law. It is the violation of people. It is the violation of relationship. And the central focus is on the victim's needs and the offender's responsibility, both for recognizing their responsibility and their responsibility for repairing the harm they have done to the greatest extent possible. One of the primary shadow sides of our current retributive justice system is that the emphasis is typically on making things unpleasant for the offender. That often has the unintended consequences of encouraging offenders not to focus and feel bad about the guilt they cause, but to shift their focus to feeling sorry for themselves and for this situation in which they find themselves. In contrast, a restorative justice process has a strong emphasis on shocking offenders into realizing the harm that they've done by having victims tell them directly, personally, how the crime has affected them. Perhaps the most well-known example of this approach is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa in the wake of racial apartheid. Let me give you just two more examples, one easier, the other more difficult. Uh, First, school systems are increasingly finding success with restorative justice processes. When a student misbehaves in a retributive justice paradigm, many of you may have experienced that in school or seen it done. It requires that a student be punished, and that's traditionally done by removing the student from the class through detention, through suspension, through even expulsion. However, those punishments risk alienating and further isolating a student who was probably acting out in the first place because they felt alienated or isolated. And then it further risks putting that student further behind academically so that when they return, they're both stigmatized for having been punished and they've missed a bunch of academic content. Moreover, with the current criminal just, with the current uh, justice system in schools, student as with the current criminal justice system in schools, uh, students of color are punished much more frequently and much more harshly in schools than white students. In contrast, restorative justice processes teach students tools for conflict resolution and increase social-emotional skills. So instead of just getting them out of the way and punishing them, it forces them to sit down together in a facilitated circle and say, why did you do this thing? And then how did that make you feel? And how might you have actually contributed? You may not be to blame, but how did you contribute to this person acting out in this way? And how might we do it differently. So it's trying to equip students so that later in life they can have these social and emotional skills. There's still consequences, but the consequences are intended to bring restitution and reconciliation in the end for all parties. Here's a more difficult example. Norway is one of a number of countries who have woven in restorative justice practices into their criminal justice system. And many of you will recall in 2011 when a right-wing extremist named Anders Breivik killed 77 people in Norway. For these terrorist attacks, he was sentenced to 21 years in prison. That's about 100 days per murder. However, he will actually likely be in prison for the rest of his life because his sentence can be continually extended. 
Of interest, media interviews with the victims' families in Norway's showed relief and satisfaction with the verdict. In this case, the restorative justice approach took into account not only punishing the perpetrator, but also the needs of the victims. In the Breivik trial, this meant giving every victim, survivors as well as the families of those killed, a direct voice. The court heard 77 autopsy reports, 77 descriptions of how Breivik had killed them, 77 minute-long biographies voicing his or her unfulfilled ambitions and dreams. The trial itself was about much more than just proving or disproving guilt. That was a huge part of it, but it was also about exercising the victim's suffering. In many instances, such restorative justice processes often lead to inner transformation and emotional breakthroughs for the perpetrators during the trial that sets the stage for their rehabilitation during their imprisonment. That was not the case with Breivik, for any of you that followed the trial. He was a remorseless, fist-pumping neo-Nazi to the very end, which is why his sentence, one among many reasons why his sentence will likely be Um, brought up again and renewed for the rest of his life. In Norway and other countries, restorative justice practices also extend to imprisonment. There's a comfortable cell, a clean and relaxing environment, daily activities that are educational, learning cooking classes. Those are all meant to prepare the the criminal to make them feel safe enough to have a potentially difficult and painful internal transformation. Incarceration in this thinking is the treatment for whatever social or psychological disease led to the transgression in the first place. The criminals are not primarily seen as wrongdoers who need to be punished, but as broken people who need to be fixed, if possible. If not, they are continued to be imprisoned. This approach is just one attempt at what Brian Stevenson calls just mercy, which seeks to honor the inherent worth and dignity of every human being while also enforcing consequences for transgressions. Relatedly, a number of members of this congregation have been involved for years with the Alternatives to Violence Project. That's all over the country. It's also in Maryland of leading workshops in prisons here in Maryland and across the country that teach anger management skills, that teach conflict transformation. If you'd like to learn more about that program, let me know, and I'd be glad to connect you with some of those members of our congregation. Being part of the Unitarian Universalist movement means being called to our best selves. It means working to build a world that offers peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all. In that spirit, I invite you to hear once more those words quoted earlier from Brian Stevenson about the lessons he has learned from working directly with death row inmates over the years. He says that proximity has taught me some basic and humbling truths including this vital lesson, each one of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. He says that my work with the poor and incarcerated has persuaded me that the opposite of poverty is not wealth, that the opposite of poverty is justice. Because I've come to believe that the true measure of our commitment to the rule of law, to fairness, to equality, can be measured by how we treat not the rich, powerful, privileged, and respected among us, but by how we treat the poor, the disfavored, the accused, the incarcerated, and the condemned. We all need mercy, we all need justice, and we all need some measure of unmerited grace.